A new episode here of From a Limestone Ledge, in which author John Graves wonders whether, after, as he puts it, having pounded large quantities of time down a rat hole, raising cattle and trying to make money from the effort is really worth it. One element in beef cattle's appeal is the fact, already intimated, that they represent a lot less work than farming or horticulture, taking care of their own needs much of the time if given half a chance. This has weight with many owners who want their land to pay its way, but who make their main living in towns and cities, and on weekends either don't have time for agriculture or possess an immunity to the sentimental pull of plow and harrow. During market upsurges, cattle can also bring in a fair amount of money, and such is human nature that upsurge prices are what cattlemen like to view as the norm, just as farmers are in love with the boom-based reference point of parity. We are still in an upsurge just now, but unfortunately these joyous intervals have seldom lasted long, for when they begin, large numbers of erstwhile spectators jump in, buy overpriced breeding stock of whatever description with borrowed money, throw them onto leased pasture, and flood the market with calves as promptly as biology permits, driving prices back down again. Thus a sleek, staggering, moony-eyed, newborn bull calf, which your doting mind's eye sees as being worth, say, $300 or more as a wean steer a few months later, may turn out to bring half that sum a crucial difference considering steady inflation and the feed and hay and other things you'll have invested in his mama during the long months of pregnancy and nursing. Sad to say, hardship ensues, whether small-scale or large, and whether to high-flyers or to the rest of us. Nothing illustrates better the main reason, the irrational one, for the 19-cow phenomenon than the fact that so many of us stay with cattle despite such setbacks. We like the damn things, and our real motivation has little to do with money or labor, but I suppose must be called romantic. Possibly the pull of the legendary Old West has something to do with it, for in the arteries of the purest romantics among us, cowboy blood pumps hot and strong. Big hats and sharp-toed boots are common attire in regions where forty years ago their wearers would have been laughed back into brogans and farmer-style caps. And on full many a hundred and sixty-acre spread on Saturdays, lariats of nylon hissed through the air, and trail drivers born too late for the trail whoop yee-haw as they pound along on horseback behind high-tailed fleeing kine, making them as wild as deer. But the majority of us, old Westerners at heart or no, do things with less flamboyance, mainly because this is easier on both the cattle and us. Some are highly progressive and thoughtful about the matter of management, perhaps lately graduated from some evening college course in animal husbandry and loaded with data on the protein content of various feeds, artificial insemination, calf gainability, and pregnancy testing. Others, maybe most, have read a few books and watched the way other folks do things and get along on that, and still others cling to casual methods, right or wrong, picked up in rural youth. A few happy-go-luckies engage in hardly any management at all, letting the beast run nearly wild within their boundary fences to multiply or die 
and every once in a while, by one means or another, gathering up calves and selling them. And another contingent, gamblers at heart, keep no breeding stock but buy steers and heifers small and sell them large, at a profit if they're lucky. Thus, clearly, unless a 19 cowman's proclivities get him slantwise with some local SPCA chapter or cause him to lose so much money that he goes broke, there's wide flexibility as to how much he needs to know and what he does with his cattle. There's also a rich variety of breeds from which he may choose, the old Herefords and Shorthorns and Anguses, Brahmins, and genetically stabilized Brahmin crosses like Branguses and Santa Gertrudis and Beefmasters, modish newer exotics such as Charlet and Simmentals and Chianinas and Limousines, and quite a few other sorts ranging from Devons and Highlands to tiny Dexters. And in a day when hybrid vigor is a magic phrase, unstabilized crosses of every sort abound, whether planned with care by breeders who knew what they're after in terms of shape and size, or achieved less studiously by someone who just dumps a bunch of varied cows into a pasture with some sort of bull and occasionally comes up with results that would appear to have been flown in by jet cargo plane from Maasai land. The ancient and tough and wily Longhorn has its partisans, and some owners even edge away from the genus Boss into things like buffaloes and beefaloes and exotic game animals. And each and every one of the creatures I've named, and a good many that I haven't, possess distinctive qualities of physique and psyche, which some human beings will admire and swear by, and others will just swear at. Small-scale beginners are often advised they'll do best to specialize in costly purebred registered beasts of whatever ilk, since the calves will be saleable at premium prices, as heifers or bulls to other breeders, who, the theory implies, will come flocking around checkbook in hand without even being asked. This can be true enough in time if the beginner in question knows or quickly learns a good bit about genetics and confirmation and artificial insemination and such things, maybe wins some prizes at livestock shows or builds his herd reputation, maybe wins some prizes at livestock shows to build his herd's reputation, and builds his own by scrupulous attention to records and frank dealing with buyers. But not all of us are that fond of intricate record-keeping, fuss and feathers, and the very special perfectionism and politics of the show ring. And there are some other difficulties with purebreds as well, especially in the rough country where some of us run our herds. Living at one end of your place, you often find it hard to know precisely what's going on at the other ends, and hard also to keep fences in perfect repair at places where they cross streams and gullies. One visit from a neighbor's off-breed bull can wreck a purebred's operation purity for a year and reduce the calf crop's value to whatever a country auction ring determines it to be. And the young bulls you're keeping for sale to those eager buyers can wander too, messing up lineage records. Hence, registered stock is not for everyone, and most of us settle for something less expensive and less prestigious, like my great Angus's, maybe keeping purebred bulls with them year after year so that the quality steadily improves even if the pedigree doesn't. We find them good to look at, 
though increasingly with time, were nagged by an impulse to get a bull of another color and produce some of those bouncing, hybridly vigorous mongrels that consistently bring up to a dime or 15 cents a pound more at sales than good calves of straight British breed, even if we don't like their looks. Having made a little money on cattle in certain years and lost some of it back in others, Having worried over an uneconomic small herd through droughts and bad winters with an intensity that would have been more wisely saved for life's main problems, having been kicked, butted, stomped, and run up corral fences countless times by number 39 and others of like temperament, having pounded large quantities of time down a rat hole over the years in the maintenance of this grudging place for bovine use, and having liked just about all of it, at least in retrospect, I'm still fond of cows and of tending them, and am sometimes puzzled, along with other devotees, to find that everyone everywhere doesn't feel the same way. My original eight heifers have all gone down the long trail to McDonald's, the last of them just this year at a quite advanced age, but I remember them well by looks and traits and names. Roy's mother... Nutty Johnson, White Tits, Big Naval, and the others, and take simple-minded pleasure in recognizing among members of the present group some cast of eye, some set of neck, some belligerence or timidity, some tone of bellow that traces back to one of those founding mothers. I can't even work up any shame about the fact that such things matter to me, nor do I really much care what it was that caused them to matter to me in the first place whether the romance of the West or osmotic absorption in youth of the basic Texas myth of ranches and ranching, or a memory derived from the collective unconscious of some Neolithic herding time when human life was pretty carefree. And while I still may manage to break loose from cows one of these years, I know already that if I do, I won't regret having expended time and energy on them. Because it seems to me there's something I needed to know about, and in a day when knowledge that you don't need comes washing in on your brain in waves like surf, it's good to have a little that you do. I'm not talking about practical needs any more than most other cow people are, even when they think otherwise. Few of them, at any rate, have trouble in getting the point of an aged joke, maybe Neolithic itself, that's reshaped and recirculated from time to time. In one version, it tells of a leathery West Texan who has fought all his life for a minimal living on a few sections of caliche and stones, but now has been blessed with a couple of million dollars of unexpected oil money. When queried as to what he intends to do, he reflects for a moment and says, No, I ain't heading for Las Vegas and all them naked floozies. I ain't going to buy me no Cadillac, neither. I figure to do something different. You do, say his questioners? Hell yes, he says. What I figure to do is just ranch and ranch and ranch and ranch till every damn last cent of that money's all used up. Chapter 9 is entitled, A Few Words in Favor of Goats. Goats undoubtedly matter to more people in the world than Texans do, but in general Texans themselves don't know or care much about goats. It is possible to consider this peculiar in light of a couple of facts. 
first, the state can be regarded in one sense as a sort of northern outpost or cutting edge of Latin American civilization, and Latins, whether on home ground along the Mediterranean or over here, are among the world's goat experts par excellence. But all that this lore boils down to for most Texans, including, I fear, most modern Texas Latins, is an occasional expensive restaurant encounter with suckling kid, known as cabrito, and maybe a remembrance of the good stout fibrous goat cheese, pale in hue that used to give enchiladas and chiles rellenos their whang, seldom seen now that even Mexican cooks have gone down the primrose lane with craft. Furthermore, we Texans have within our boundaries, or had until just lately, one of the world's great concentration of goats in the big herds of long-haired angoras that thrived on the live oak and other hardwood scrub of the Edwards Plateau and similar limestone regions. But despite their numbers, over four million strong at their peak in the 60s, I suppose the angoras were never a big part of most Texans' consciousness, restricted as they were to some fairly lonesome parts of the state, and usually hidden from the eyes of motorists by the brush in which they browsed. More than once when traveling with city friends, I've heard them referred to as sheep. The herds shrank hugely, most were shipped to Mexico for meat, when mohair fell out of fashion and the market collapsed. Although mohair's vogue and its price have lately come back strong, ranchers caution about further fluctuation as well as about other factors such as predation, chiefly by coyotes and dogs and hybrids thereof, has kept hair goats from regaining their old status. Much of the world's mohair is now produced by South Africa, and when you see goats on the plateau and roundabout, they're just about as likely to be of the tough, unhairy common sort known as Spanish. Both kinds control brush and furnish kids for barbecue, and both are the subject of a considerable body of ranchers' folklore involving mainly their ability to get out of where you put them into places where they're not supposed to be, such as grain fields and neighbors' pastures and highway median strips. If you want an adequate goat fence, one story goes, you build it as tight as you can with close space posts and lots of upright stays and all dips in the ground beneath the wire filled with rocks or stumps or something, then you wait for a big rain. And if the fence holds water, it'll hold your goats. Another tale describes a scientific experiment conducted at Texas A&M wherein three goats were stuffed into a steel drum which was then welded shut. When it was opened a week later, one goat was dead, another had screw worms, and the third one was missing. When we used to keep a good-sized herd of Spanish goats here on our place, a few of each year's crop of weanling kids, newly independent and capable of squeezing through holes impassable to their parents, would form a teenage gang that ravaged the neighborhood. Since they usually came back, and there isn't too much to ravage in these rocky hills, problems resulted only when they tried to return home through a part of the fence that had no holes in it, or when they got far enough afield to discover somebody's yard shrubbery or a vegetable garden. The resultant telephone calls, beginning most often with, Are you missing any goats? were not invariably friendly in tone. Sometimes the tales and the folklore have to do with goats' horrible susceptibility to predation, and most are not very funny. An early traumatic episode in my administration of this place came one January 
when, inspired by experimentalism and ignorance, I elected to leave 40 or so Spanish goats in a rough hill pasture to kid. The foraging nannies would then stash their dozing toddlers in high grass as deer do fawns, but fawns stay in place very quietly until their mothers come back, whereas the newborn kids, waking hungry alone or in their twin pairs, would begin to shrill and squeak and would bring on themselves the rapt attention of furred gourmets of various types. By the time I and my wife and a helpful neighbor had gathered up such little ones as we could find and had hustled them back with the mamas and the bereft's and the still pregnants back to the home pasture, nineteen kids were left out of perhaps thirty-five that had greeted life just in the past few days. Nor had I managed to find and wreak vengeance on one single member of the opposition. All I found in my armed wanderings were a few bobcat and big coon tracks and some small, bloody, ragged remains when the buzzards hadn't beaten me to them. The appreciation of cabrito is widespread. A generation or so ago, in harder but more easy-going times, goats were known and taken for granted by a good many more Texans, and for that matter Americans, than know anything about them today. They existed even in cities, sheltered by crusty codgers in backyard sheds, and sometimes tethered during the day in vacant lots or out among roadside weeds. Scrub milk nannies, for the most part, with an occasional aromatic billy kept for propagation, they soothed many an aging or unquiet stomach with the rich liquid from their udders, furnished roly-poly manure for garden compost, and kids for delicate meat gave gestures of focus for worn boffo humor concerning tin cans and old inner tubes, and grateful tumble-bugs, and developed evil tempers under the teasing of small boys, including me. Without ever being what you might call chic or even reputable, they hung on. But affluence is even harder on goats than it is on human picturesqueness and the unreal, increasingly homogeneous glitter island of time that urban Americans have lately been inhabiting. There's not much place for subsistence livestock, which is what goats fundamentally are. Public opinion and the public nuisance laws that reflect it have turned against them and other such creatures, and you usually have to go out beyond a city's limits to its unzoned, often unincorporated fringes to find any goats at all, and not many even there. Milk comes less arduously, though not cheaper in cartons, and there has been among us a dwindling of stubborn, country-bred old folks who cling to subsistence ways. If city vegetable gardening, based on poison fear and anger at market prices and quality, is on the boom these days, city goat-keeping has not been following suit. Farther from cities, though, goats are in pretty good shape, and I'm not talking about big ranch herds. How much of the new population trend away from metropolitan centers, confirmed by the Census Bureau, represents flight to a less hectic but still supermarket-centered existence in small towns or exurban developments, and how much consists of neo-homesteaders moving whole or part hog back to the land to live and subsist, I have no way of knowing. But in a time like ours, when many view the urban future quite dimly, there are notable members of these latter from young to medium-old in vintage, searching out their destined two or ten or twenty or more acres, building a house or refurbishing an old one, laying out gardens and orchards, 
learning to grind wheat and corn for bread and maybe to ferment their own beer and wine, training and preparing for tough times if they come. Some have the cash to pay for all this out of pocket. Others manage by commuting back to good jobs in the cities they have left or otherwise. As often as not, their plans include livestock, preferably in small numbers and not too daunting in size. If they have in mind producing their own milk and butter and cheese, goats are made to order for them. Hence, in the past few years, there's been a solid little boom in the breeding and sale of pedigreed dairy goats and a rocketing of their value. Breeders of good reputation with some show champions in their herds are asking and getting up to four or $500 for four-month-old wean doe kids, doe and buck in this more genteel goat world having supplanted the old vacant lot terms of nanny and billy. Americans like to go first class, and these goats definitely do have chic, at least in given circles. If they're willing to pay that much for a young beast that won't be productive for another year or so, as much as a first-rate milk cow would cost, the clear inference is they most specifically want a goat. It was not always so in rural America. The traditional American family farm, the sort of holding people went to frontier to stake out for themselves until the frontier reached country too dry to sustain traditional farm life, had little use for goats, but relied instead on cows, of which the classic types were the big-eyed, sweet-breathed Jerseys and Guernseys and Ayrshire, beloved of children's book illustrators. There were some reasons for this. For one thing, most of those farmers' ancestry traced back to the British lowlands and North Europe where cow's milk cultures prevailed. Another reason was great big families. You need a fair group of people and a couple of pigs besides to do justice to the three daily gallons or so that a good milk cow can yield. And still another was the prime land that characterizes, or did before old-style agriculture chewed the topsoil from so much of it, farms in the eastern United States. For the milk cow is a good land animal, faring and producing but poorly in deserts and semi-deserts and mountains and the earth's other reaches of marginal and sub-marginal soil, whether shaped by climate or man's abuse or both. Those reaches are the true stomping grounds of the goat, which can climb nearly anywhere and thrive on skimpy forage in places that would starve a cow or sheep. The names of the best-known breeds mirror such origins. Toggenberg and Sianen, both Swiss to start with, Alpine, Mercian, named after an Iberian province, and the rootstock of most of the hardy Spanish goats of Mexico and South Texas, Nubian, even Angora for that matter. The Scottish Highlands cherish goats, as did Norway, the vast, high, arid places of Asia, the rocky parts of Ireland, and the lands along the Mediterranean after the ancients had worn them out. A well-established slander, which still crops up in forums like the UN, holds goats responsible for much of the ecological devastation in such places. This is resented aloud or in published form by goat people, including such luminaries as the late Scottish expert David Mackenzie, whose wise and whimsical goat husbandry remains in print as sort of a Bible for the whole clan. There's no question that goats out of control can do big damage, as they have on many small islands without predators, 
where breeding stock was turned loose 200 or more years ago by ships from maritime nations to furnish meat for future voyagers, R. Crusoe and his real-life prototype, Alexander Selkirk, having been beneficiaries of that practice. But in an area like the Mediterranean Basin, for example, that indictment is flimsy. Man, with his reckless hillside farming, his vast herds of any and all species of livestock, his axes and saws and ever-waxing numbers, man is the one who did it. And if goats are still around consolidating the damage because they're the only domesticated beast that can now survive in some parts of the region, that's hardly the goat's own fault. You're listening to The Bookshelf in a reading from John Graves' book, From a Limestone Ledge, which he described as some essays and other ruminations about country life in Texas. It's published by the University of Texas Press. Please join us again for the next episode in which Graves continues his discourse about goats and his affection for the critters. For the Bookshelf's executive producer, Vern Windham, I'm Tom Bacon.